You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so you're going to need your Bible out and, uh, and on your lap. And if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath every four or five seats, something like that. You should be able to find a Bible there. And so if you need one, uh, feel free to grab that. And if you need a Bible, you can take that home with you. That, that is yours as of right now. And so um, we are, if you've stumbled in today, we are in part four of a set of sermons called Prayers, where we are working through the vision and values of Stonegate and, and then couching that in the language of prayer at the end of that, giving you something and really inviting you in to start praying for our church family in regards to one of, one of just kind of component of our vision and values. And so this is one of those sets of sermons, though, that, that aren't like stand alone solely. Like it, it takes a little bit of the background and knowing where we've come from that to find yourself kind of in, in good standing today in here and knowing where we are. So let me just do a quick recap and review of where we've been. Um, week one, we, we essentially asked the question, what are we about as a church? Like what has God commissioned us to be doing here? And so here was our answer from, from week one, because God is about the glory of God. We, we say it like this, that Stonegate exists or that we are about extending the glory of God. So, so this place is not about making much of any man. It's not about making much of you. It's not about making much of me. It's not for your name, for my name. It is for God's name that we have a church. That's what the church is for. And then we tried to answer the question in week one of, if this is what we're to be about, extending the glory of God, how do we go about doing that? What does extending the glory of God look like? How do we get most glory for God? And according to Matthew 28, we answered it like this, that, that we get most glory from God by making disciples. We extend the glory of God by making disciples. And, and so this is the primary, the centralized, the prioritized thing that we are about, extending the glory of God through making disciples. And, and we've talked about this for weeks now, that making disciples comes in two parts. There is part one where it is gospel proclamation to people who don't know Jesus and desperately need Jesus. And we get to watch God do what only he can do in saving people. And then we get to walk with those saved people, keep proclaiming the gospel to those saved people as God grows them to maturity. It's a both and thing. We're not just about evangelism. We're not just about discipleship. Like it's a, it's a total package of disciple making. So, so we are about extending the glory of God through making disciples. And then in week two, we tried to start the answer to this question. How do we go about making disciples? It's going to take us three weeks to work through that. This is the third week of that. The answer of, if that is, if that's the mission, extending the glory of God through, by making disciples, how do we go about accomplishing the mission? What is the means of the mission? And so in week two, we talked about this, that it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how you accomplish the mission. That's how we make disciples. So in week two, we worked through Romans 1, 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that word salvation is a big, all-encompassing word. It means that the gospel is God's means to both make a disciple, in other words, make a Christian, and to mature a disciple. That the gospel does all of that. And then in week uh, number three, we started talking about gospel implications. That, that one of the means that God uses us to, to grow to maturity is the gospel implication of community. We looked at 1 Peter 2, 9. That we are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And if you remember back a couple of weeks ago, we talked about all of those are plural. All, all of those are like the you is you all. It, you're not a nation if you're one person. It takes more than one person. So when God saves you, he places you in a family called the church. Places you in that family. And so we talked about kind of from this angle that week. That unless you have a people who are willing to speak the truth in love to you, you will not grow to spiritual maturity. Unless you have people who are willing to faithfully wound you, you're not going to grow to spiritual maturity. Unless you're willing to be known in community, there's always going to be part of your spiritual growth that lags behind. Community, God's people, the church, the church family, is one of God's primary means to grow you to maturity. It is one of God's primary means to help you see your sin clearly and to help you see Jesus clearly. This is what community is designed by God to do for you. And then this is the, the second implication of the gospel. When we're answering the question, 
How do we make disciples here? It's gospel. One implication is community. The second implication of that is mission. That the gospel not only gives us a family to live with, the gospel gives us a mission to live for. And I don't know if you remember that 1 Peter 2, 9 passage, but it talks about how you're a chosen people, a a people for God's own possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the reason. The gospel gives us a family to live with and a mission to live on and for. Okay, so with that said, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, talking about mission. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's start in verse 17. Let me read this, this to you again. These five or six verses. Starting in verse 17, Paul says this. <clears throat> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Aren't we thankful for that? He is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That is a big gospel reality right there. Verse 18. And all this is from God. All of what? All of verse 17. All of this new creation business, this old going away, new coming, all of that is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And I just want you to notice some of these these verses here. Verse 18. Notice, I want to emphasize this as we read it the first time. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is what God is doing. This is what God is about. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The first part of verse 19. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so as we read that the first time, here's the first thing I want you to see out of that passage. That it is giving us a clear picture of the missionary God of the Bible. This is what you're seeing here. This clear picture of the missionary God of the Bible. So just look at this again. Verse 18, all this is from God. The whole idea of you being a new creation, actually a Christian with a new heart. That all of that he's saying is from God. That it is 100% the initiative of God. That when you open up the Bible, here is what you see. You see God as missionary. God as initiator. God as starter. But when we're talking about new creation in verse 17, the old passing away, the, the new coming, that is 100% the work of God. Amen? This is the grace of God visiting a person and making them a new creation. See, this is God that initiates This is God who comes after. And then you keep reading in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now I want you to think about that word reconciliation. The the word reconciliation implies that we have a problem with God, doesn't it? It it implies that we are at odds with God. It, it It is implying that there is a disconnect between a human being and God. And the Bible affirms this all throughout. This is Ephesians chapter 2, where um, Paul's going to tell us there that when you're born, here's how you're born. Dead in your sin. Do you remember that in Ephesians 2? Here's how you're born. You are born as an object of God's wrath. This is Romans 5, where it's going to say this. Paul's going to say that that when you're born, here's how you're born. You're born as an enemy of God. You don't like God, and God has a problem with you. See, this is what reconciliation implies. That we are at odds with God. That we have a deep, serious disconnect between us and God. And here's what reconciliation means. That God, the missionary God, initiates and that he bridges the gap for us. That God the Father would be gracious enough, here's missionary God, to send. That is missionary language. To send Jesus, God the Son. To, to do what? Look at verse 18. Or look at verse 19. That in Christ, God would reconcile the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, now, now this is gospel, right? This is God, now think about what's happening here. That, that, that God is saying through Paul, that listen, I am not going to count your sin against you. You know who I'm going to count it against? Jesus. I'm not going to kill you for your sin. You know who I'm going to kill? I'm going to send my son and kill him for your sin. Okay, now now keep thinking here with me. It it gets even better. God is saying in Jesus 
I, I, I'm going to send Jesus. I'm not going to kill, punish, crush you for your sin. I'm going to punish and crush Jesus for your sin. Okay, now, are you seeing these sort of gospel implications here? This is what the word reconciliation means. Now, I want you to look at me square in the face here. That God, through Paul, is telling you this this morning. I have initiated everything and I have slaughtered my son so I wouldn't have to slaughter you so you could be right with me. Look at verse 21. Look down at verse 21. Paul gets one of the most spectacular descriptions of the gospel. A one verse summary of the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Jesus, to be sin for you who knew no sin. So see, one half of the gospel is is you're not crushed for your sin. Jesus was crushed for it. But there's another half of the gospel. Look at the, the rest of verse 21. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So see, it's not just Jesus being crushed for our sin. It's us being credited with the perfect life of Jesus. So that when God looks at you, he looks at you as perfect. Now, now, let that settle on you with some force this morning. You know you. And God is saying, because of Jesus, when I look at you, I see perfection. That, That I have made Jesus to be what you know about you, all the bad. So that when I look at you, I see nothing but Jesus. See, this is what the gospel is. That that he who knew no sin became sin for you. That in him you might become the righteousness of God. So from from cover, front cover to the back, you you see presented throughout the pages of scripture a missionary God. Amen? This is God. Okay, now I want you to read verse 17 through 21 again with a different emphasis. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And I want you to to hear this emphasis. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God reconciles and then gives us and trusts us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then here's part two, emphasis. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. Therefore, in light of all of that, in light of God reconciling and entrusting to us this ministry and message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't, we don't just see a picture of a missionary God here. We also see a picture of the missionary people of God. That's what we're seeing here. That it's not just a God who, who reconciles. It's then a God who entrusts those people he has reconciled to himself with the ministry of reconciliation. That, that God now invites us to per- participate with him in this great enterprise of reconciliation. I mean, that is a marvel. If you were God, would you have done that? I don't know that I would have. He is entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation. So let me just pull out six missionary implications from this passage. Six missionary implications. When we're talking ambassador, we're talking missionary language, that we are a sent one. We are a mouthpiece of God here. Okay, so so six missionary implications. Number one, missionary is an identity. The, The missionary is an identity. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we, and then this is key word, missionary as, as identity here. We, and this word, are ambassadors for Christ. Now, notice what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say you do the work of an ambassador. It doesn't say that you do the work of representing. It doesn't say that you do the work of being a mouthpiece for God. It doesn't say you do the work of a missionary. It says that you are an ambassador. In other words, when God saves a person, he also sends that person. This missionary God of the Bible that you see from cover to cover, when he saves a person, he then commissions them as missionaries, as ambassadors. See, it's a lot different when you say we do missions as opposed 
to, to saying that we are missionaries. See, when you do missions, here's what that implies. That you work really hard to fit mission-type things into your schedule. You work really hard to periodically put it on the calendar. But when we say that we are missionaries, that this is identity for us, here's what that means. That it saturates everything on the calendar. Now, do you see the difference in those two things? See, when you do the work of missionary, it's just a miscellaneous thing that plugs into your life periodically. It's another kind of thing on the to-do list for you. But when we say that we are ambassadors, we are missionaries, when we start using identity language, we're saying this, that it soaks its way into the fabric of everything we're doing. Everything. Recreation, hobbies, work, neighborhood. Everything we do at that point, but it has a missional impulse in it. Okay, so, so let me just try to answer this question. What is a missionary? A, a missionary, let me just work maybe through this definition with you. A missionary is a person that is sent by God and living on the mission of God. This is a missionary. Okay, now, now notice what that would punch through. That punches through a really big missionary myth. That a lot of us, when we think missionary, we think foreign place. We think, we think location. Missionary is not an issue of location, but your primary occupation. M- missionary has nothing to do with where you live, but what you're living for. Do you see that? It's an issue of are you living sent by God on his mission? See, this is what a missionary is, an ambassador is. It's a person sent by God on his mission. So it has nothing to do with where you live, everything to do with what you're living for. So for some of us in the room, God is going to call you or me or us to a foreign field, to an unreached people. We've sent a couple of people over the last year to an unreached place. For some in the room, he's going to call you to a different place in the country. For for others in the room, he's going to call you to the great city of Midlothian. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? He's going to call you there to live in your neighborhood as a missionary. So so let me say this again. It has nothing to do with location. Everything to do with your primary occupation, what you're living for. So, So this is missionary language here. It's an identity issue. This is what you are, not just something you do. Okay, second thing. I'm going to press this down and personalize this. The first one is missionary is an identity. The second one is, if you're a Christian, missionary is your identity. Look back at verse 20. Therefore, and you see that word, we, if you're a Christian, you're included. If you're a Christian, that is you he's talking about. That it's not just a certain crew of Christians, kind of the gifted and talented section of us. It is every Christian. Everyone, this is why Charles Spurgeon would say that, that Christian, you're either a missionary or an imposter. One of the two. See, th- this is identity language and it is personalized to you. If you're a Christian, you are a missionary. Okay, now here's what I want to do. I want to give four questions that we talk about a lot around here. We do it now in every one of our follow-up conversations when a person becomes a covenant member of Stonegate. We just ask four questions that help gauge missional depth. So, so let me run these by you and, and for, for you to, to get to just have a gauge on, are you living in this missionary identity, this ambassador identity? Has it soaked itself into the way that you're living? Has it made its way out of your life yet? So here's first question. Number one. Have you ever had the joy of watching God use your life to display the gospel and your lips to declare the gospel for the salvation of a friend, a coworker, a neighbor? Has that happened for you? Now, okay, I, I, and I just want to be as gentle as possible here, but, but I, I think it's worth saying this. For like, statistics would say that like 95% of Christians that never, like in their entire life of being a Christian, that never happens for them. And can I just say this as gently as possible, but but I think we need to hear it. I don't think that's because God's not willing to save. I don't think that's because God isn't willing to use you. I I don't think that's the reason. I I think God really wants to and can use you for that. Not, Not just a special crew, not just a pastor, not just a preacher, but you. 
Question number two. And these are all going to be built on each other. So if we want to see that, here would be the next layer down that we're going to have to get to. Number, number two. In the last month, have you had any gospel conversations with those who don't know Jesus? Like generally speaking, the reason that we're not seeing God use our life and lips for the salvation of other people is because we're not talking about Jesus with people who, who don't know Jesus. Like this is the issue. We're not having gospel conversations. Like something like, and, and well, and just to maybe go back here, and we could like broaden this from two months, three months, six months, a year. Like it would just be the norm. Like this is a weird norm for a Christian to have though. It would be the norm for Christians to go years and years of their life without having gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And I think there's something wrong with that. That, that ought to like do something in us, stir up some, some weirdness in us when we hear that, when we see that in our life. Question number three. And again, these work kind of in descending order. If we want to see God working through our life and lips, it's going to mean that we have to have gospel conversation. And if we want to have gospel conversations that are the most fruitful and effective, here's the next question. In the last six months, have you had anyone into your home for dinner that doesn't know Jesus? I, I, I'm just trying to, to bring this up on, on a relational context. Like, do you know people who don't know Jesus? See, the reason that we don't talk about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus is because we don't know people who don't know Jesus. Are, are you seeing how that works itself out in your life? That, now, think about, think about on a personal level, and you need to be really careful about this, that the longer you are a Christian, the more likely you are going to surround your life and plug in like every relational slot that you have with other Christians. The longer you're a Christian, the more likely it is that you're not going to have Christian friends. Okay, now, and again, I just want to say this as gently, but, but I think we need to hear this. You should have friends right now in your life that are not Christians. I can, and when we say, like, I'm talking about, like, invite into your home sort of a no. Like an across the dinner table sort of a no. Like you know their kids, they know your kids. You know about their life, they know about your life. They know what you struggle with, you know what they struggle with. We're talking about that sort of a no. Well, you're actually friends. Like that sort of a no. They're in your life. When you go out on a Friday night, you want to call them because you like them. They like you, you're friends. Like you do things together. We're talking about friendships like that. Number three, in the last six months, have you had anyone into your home for dinner that doesn't know Jesus? Are you fighting against this inevitable pull towards inwardness? And then here's the fourth one. If we want to see God use our life and lips for the salvation of other people, it means that we're going to have to have gospel conversations with people who don't know Jesus, which means that we're going to have to have friendships with people who don't know Jesus, which means, number four, who are you consistently praying for that doesn't know Jesus? And, and I'm talking like pleading with God to save. Like pestering God to save them. To use you to do that. Is there anyone in your life that you're praying for like that? I mean that you are pleading with God to do something. I mean you are pleading with God to I mean, do something extraordinary and crazy in their life. Praying like that. Fasting like that. I mean, pleading with God. Okay, now, can, if all four of these questions are no for us, which here's what I've found over the last three years of just asking questions around our church family, that for most of us, these questions are no. Here's what I want to just press into us today. That is a huge problem. And, and that is what the Bible would call sin that actually needs to be repented of. That, that if we are forsaking this missionary identity that God has given us, that, that is sin. I mean, God is saying, I've entrusted this to you. I've commanded you to, to go and make disciples. And so if we're not doing that, we need to be on our knees before God confessing and repenting and turning from that. And, and so maybe this morning that would be an appropriate application like if we did nothing else today for us to be on our knees before God because we have been sucked in to inwardness. Number three, third missionary implication. That missionaries are entrusted with the gospel message. Look at verse 19. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Isn't this wild that God would look at you and say, I am going to entrust you with this good news, this gospel, this message of reconciliation. I'm going to entrust you with that. That means that if we're a Christian in the room who has been reconciled to God, we have got to get down. We've got to know, be able to articulate what that message is. And maybe you could think about it in four questions. Question number one, who is Jesus? This is where the gospel starts. Who is Jesus? The Bible is going to say that he is fully God. He he is part of God. He is part of the Trinity. But he is also fully human. He's strapped on human flesh, that he is the Messiah, the sent one. What did Jesus do? He lived, came and lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He died on the cross as a substitute for you, slaughtered so you wouldn't have to be for your sin. He rose again on the third day. This is what Jesus has done for you. What must we do? We've got to repent. That is turning from sin and trusting and treasuring Jesus. Trusting that his life is good for us. That our sin was credited to him. That his perfect righteousness was counted for us. This is what we've got to do. Trust and treasure Jesus. And then what happens to us? This is where the, the Bible uses this word justified. That God, because of Jesus' perfect work for us, when we trust and treasure Jesus, God pronounces over us, you are finally and fully forgiven, made right with me. When I look at you, I see a perfect Jesus. This is, this is what you are. This is what happens to us. We are adopted into the family of God. You're placed inside of a church family. And you're commissioned as missionaries on God's mission. This is gospel. And if we're going to be entrusted with that message, we have to know that message. Why? Look at verse 20. Paul says this, It's as though God is making his appeal through us. Now think about that. We've got to know this message because it is God's means of getting his message out to the world. That that we are the mouthpiece of God. It's as though God were making his appeal. Listen, do you want God to appeal to your neighbor? Do you know who God has put by your neighbor for that to happen? You. Do you you want God to appeal to the heart of your coworker? Do you know who God has strategically and intentionally and providentially put in his life for that or her life for that? You. You. That it's as though God were making his appeal through you to them. So you've been entrusted with that message of reconciliation. Number four. Missionaries are not only entrusted with the message of reconciliation, but with the ministry, gospel ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I mean, it's as though God looks at the church and says this. Under my authority and by my power, I am entrusting to you this ministry of getting my message out to the world. I'm entrusting you with this ministry of reconciliation. I'm commissioning you as missionaries, as ambassadors, to be my mouthpiece to the world, to get my message out. This is your ministry. I'm entrusting it to you. Under my authority and by my power, it is now yours to carry forward. Isn't that a wild thing that God would do that? And let me take a step back here and and just address it from a 30,000 foot level and and say this, that that your growth and your maturity is dependent upon these things. That this is part of what we bring to the table in our maturity with God, in our maturity as a disciple. That, That you living on the mission of God is a requirement for you growing as a disciple of God. Maybe you could say it this way. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a healthy, mature Christian if you are not on the mission of God. Don't fool yourself into thinking that. It would be like the guy who eats at the buffet every day thinking that by eating, he is eating his way into good shape. You don't eat your way into good shape. It requires both eating and exercise. Amen? That's what it requires. And that is a good metaphor for how mission works in our life. We are to come, gather at a place like this, read our Bible. We're to eat gospel food. But don't think by eating gospel food that you're automatically mature. It takes eating and exercise. We eat good gospel food and then we exercise. Maybe you can think of it this way. We breathe in gospel. This is breathing in. We breathe out mission. 
Now see, if you're the guy that just breathes in, what happens if you breathe in for like three minutes? You die here. See, this is what a lot of us, this is what's happening for a lot of us. We are suffocating because we won't breathe out. Right? And, And so it's breathing in, that's gospel intake. Breathing out, that's mission. It requires both of those. So let me ask you the question. Are you both breathing in and breathing out? Are you both eating and exercising? See, if we're going to mature, if we're going to be healthy, it requires both of those to be happening. Okay, now, and let me step back and address it from, from this angle. This idea of God entrusting you and I and us with the ministry of reconciliation informs our strategy as a church for how we intend to reach our area. So, so every church has to make a decision as to what is their strategy to reach their community. Every church has to do that. And not every church articulates it in a, like a succinct way to their people, but every church in their culture has a way that they are going about it, has a strategy. And so some churches, it may be programs where, where their intent is, let's build the best programs we can build so people will come and see those programs. So let's have the most incredible youth ministry, the most incredible, crazy children's thing going on. Whatever that is, let's let's do it. I mean, like, we are out of the park crazy in an effort to attract, in an effort to to make people come and see what we're doing. In In a sense, that they would be strategizing like this. That our best missionary are our programs. That there would be other churches that might use their facility. So we are going to build like the Taj Mahal in an effort to make sure people come and see what we're doing. So we'll put in like a nine-story slide, animatronics at the bottom of it. We'll have the bear on the tricycle out front in the foyer. We'll put some lights and lasers on special Sundays. We'll bring in the fog, the whole thing, right? And and so this is their strategy. It may be unspoken, but their strategy goes like this. Our greatest missionary is our building. Some would depend on location. Our greatest missionary is our location. Others, it may be the latest evangelism tool. We're going to go big. We're going to get an airplane drop tracks with the Stonegate logo out of it. I mean, we're going to go crazy doing all of these things when the posture of all of those is come and see. Now, we want to leverage some of those in appropriate ways. We're not abandoning every one of those. Some of those could be appropriate. But but here's what we just want to make super clear. That, That our primary strategy... The the way, if you were to ask us the question, how are we going to reach our area? Primary strategy is this, you, you, that's it. We're not depending on a program. We're not depending on a building. We're not depending on primarily on a location. We are depending on you. See, God has entrusted you with this ministry of reconciliation. You know what that means? When God answers the question, what is my plan for getting my message out? Look around the room right here. Just look around. You see people around this room? That's, that's his plan. Not a building, not a program. Th- this is the plan. This is how God has deemed it best to get the message of reconciliation out. See, you're, you're the plan. I, our strategy is primarily missional. Here's what missional means. It takes mission or evangelist, like evangelism and makes it an adjective to describe a person or a Christian who has adopted the posture, the thinking, and the behaviors of a missionary. That's our strategy. It's missional. It's you and I developing the posture, the attitude, and the behaviors of a missionary in our neighborhood, in our workplace. When when we're, let's say our kid plays football on Saturday at the football field. It's us living as missionaries in all of those places. This is our strategy to reach our area. This is it. It's primarily missional. It's you and it's me. So so when you ask the question, is Stonegate reaching people? Here would be the wrong thing to think. What happens at the end of a service? That's not the right thing to think. Here's the right thing to think. My group of friends that I know at Stonegate, the community that I'm living among, are we praying for people who don't know Jesus? Are we inviting them into our life? Are we having gospel conversations? And is God using our life and lips for the salvation of other people? And if your answer is yes, our answer is yes. If your answer is no, our answer is no. 
You are the strategy. Our, our strategy is primarily missional. Why? Because according to, to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5, God has entrusted you with the message of reconciliation, with the ministry of reconciliation. Number five. Fifth missionary implication. Missionaries are motivated by the gospel. The gospel is not only our message to get out, it's the motivator to get it out. See, if you're not living on mission this morning, that the issue is really idolatry and a lack of belief in all that Jesus has done for you. On a root level, this is the issue. We are not grasping and getting deep, rich, big gospel themes and threads. That's the problem. See, when we start getting those gospel threads and those big gospel themes, they start to soak into our life. We start to say what Paul does in verse 14. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, constrains us. Why? Look at the rest of verse 14 and 15. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, the, for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, if we're going to be a people who reach out, primarily missional, go and tell, it is dependent upon us realizing and grasping and recognizing that God in Jesus has reached down. Let me say that one more time. If we are going to be a people who reach out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be because we are a people who realize that in Jesus, God has reached down. When we start to get that, God reaching down, we start to naturally start to reach out. The gospel is the fuel for the mission. It's the motivator for the mission. Number six. Sixth missionary implication. Missionaries are broken for those without Jesus. Broken. Ache for those without Jesus. Before you and I are going to effectively bring the gospel to those who don't know Jesus, we're going to have to break for those who don't know Jesus. I mean, there's going to have to be something in your soul that stirs really deep. For you to start thinking about big things like eternity is long, hell is horrible, Jesus is a great savior. Like we're going to have to start thinking like that. We're going to have to start thinking. Look at what Paul says in verse um, 11. You just, you just see this ooze out of Paul in this passage. Verse 11, he says, I'm trying to persuade you. Verse 13, he, he, he says and, and, and basically says, we're crazy for your sake. We are crazy in a sense that we are trying to get the gospel out. Verse 16, I love this. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Here's what he's saying. That it is impossible for me to think about anyone apart from their relationship with God. Now think about that for a second. That we regard no one according to the flesh. That it is impossible for me to think about anyone, my neighbor, my coworker, apart from their relationship with God, apart from the last day when they're going to stand before God. It is impossible for me to think about them apart from thinking about that, of what happens in that moment, what happens on that day. Now, can we just stop and think about this for a second? Think about the neighbors that God has put you around and the coworkers. Can you just sail on this for a second? What happens on the last day when they stand before God? Can, can you just think about that for a moment? What happens in that moment? May that create some urgency for us, some brokenness for us. I mean, some aches deep in our soul. Do you believe in eternity? I mean, do you believe in like a literal place called hell? I mean, I really do. And, and I think that should break us for neighbors who don't know Jesus, for friends who don't know Jesus, for family who doesn't know Jesus. I mean, that, that should create a posture in us that is pleading with God to save them and broken for them. Look at verse 20, the second half. Look, look what Paul says here. We implore. Do you see that? We implore. You look that up in the dictionary, you know what that means? Beg earnestly. 
We are begging you earnestly on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I pray that that would be said of our church, that they are a people who beg earnestly that people would be reconciled to God. I, I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, if sinners be damned, let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. And I pray that if people in your neighborhood are damned to hell, it would be over your body. They would have to leap over you to get there. And if they perish, it would be with your arms around their knees. Amen? That we would be that sort of a church that that breaks in that way for people who don't know Jesus. That like authentically hurt for people who don't know Jesus. Okay, I want to end with giving you, uh, giving you three ending encouragements. Three encouragements. In light of 2 Corinthians 5, three encouragements. In light of this missionary identity that God has given you, three encouragements. Number one. Number one, begin praying for a few families that don't know Jesus. I mean, let's just start there. Just, just begin praying. I mean, I think we need to make this as bite-sized as possible. Let's just start there. What if you got one or two families in your mind and you just started praying persistently for them? I mean, begging that God would save, begging that God would do something, begging that God would redeem and rescue. I love the story of George Mueller. If you've never read his autobiography, you should pick it up sometime. It would be food for your soul. But there is a story about George Mueller where he began praying for five friends that didn't know Jesus, and three of them instantly uh, became Christians. Almost like overnight, God came in, worked in a really powerful way, and saved them. Two others he prayed for for 25 years. That's persistent prayer, isn't it? 25 years. He was asked this question, do you really believe that those two men are going to be saved? I mean, do you really believe after 25 years that, that God's up to that? Here was his response. Do you think God would have kept me praying all these years if he did not intend to answer? Can, can I just tell you what you should expect if you're a believer and you're praying for a family? For God to answer you? Why would God lay it on you so strongly if he didn't, if he didn't intend to answer? I mean, you should expect that. So um, one of them, the fourth one, uh, George Mueller died and right at his death, the fourth one became a Christian. And then the fifth one at his funeral became a Christian. 25 years later, all five of them believers. Now, now what what if that was said about you in 25 years? Prayed for 25 years for these people and at the last day, God rescued and redeemed. And one more encouragement on this level. Pray specifically. It's not generalities like all of your neighborhood. It's specific people in your neighborhood. That way you actually know it when God answers. I mean, it's specific people that you are interceding with God for them that God would save and rescue and redeem. What if we all started there? Like we legitimately were praying specifically for people. Like in your home group, you all knew exactly who you were praying for. And you together prayed for them. So so first encouragement, that we're praying for a few families who don't know Jesus. Number two, that we invite those few families into our life. Like, Like it goes like this, that we start praying for them and then we actually become friends with them. Like you have them over, they have you over, you know them, they know you. Like you actually know them like that. And do you know what starts to happen when you start to know people? Gospel conversations can just start to, to happen in a much more natural way. So, so number two is that we just get to know and we befriend people who don't know Jesus. That we leave some of our relational slots open for those who need Jesus. Number three. So number one, we begin praying for a few families. Number two, we invite those families into our life. And number three, that we initiate gospel conversations. And I think this is where, for most Christians, the freak-out mode begins to happen. Like, how do we do that? So, so let me just make it real bite-sized for you. I want to give you just a couple of encouragements on how to make gospel conversations not totally weird for you. Like, how to ease into them. How, how to take simple steps that, like you today, regardless of where you are, could take in here. So, so here would be the first. What if you just made sure, like, you actually knew your neighbors, first of all. 
and, and they just knew that you were a Christian. Like you actually just let them know that you're a Christian. And you don't have to be weird about that. You don't have to like drop a track in front of them as your way to make sure they know you're a Christian. I, and so I, I'm a pastor. So for, for me, the conversations normally go like this. What do you do? They tell me. Then they ask me, what do I do? Well, I pastor a church. Like we're there pretty quickly, right? And so you, you've got to figure out for you what, what the lead-in is to that. Like just in a natural flow of conversation, what it looks like for you to express, I'm a Christian, So so just make sure they know that you're a Christian. Number two, ask friends about their faith and just listen. Initiating gospel conversation comes a lot better through questions than through your answers. So you're just asking questions. If you want to lay up in our culture for a question that would initiate faith-oriented stuff, where do you go to church? You're going to get there pretty quickly about what people think, if they don't, if they do, what they like, all that stuff. It's just a simple way to initiate conversation. Number three, Listen to your friend's problems and offer to pray for them. Do you know what happens when you actually become friends with people who don't know Jesus? You begin to realize they've got serious problems in their life and they begin to talk to you about them. I mean, isn't that a profound thing, how that happens? And do you know what you have a wonderful opportunity to do at that moment? 99 out of 100 people in Midlothian, Texas or our area, if you say, can I pray for you? Do you know what they're going to say? Of course you can. And you get to pray for them. Like, wouldn't that be a simple way? Just as you get to know people, listen to problems, that you get to offer to pray for them. Like, right there on the spot, you get to pray for them. Number four, is you get to share your problems with others and talk about how faith in Jesus has helped you. Can I tell you what your neighbors don't need? A Christian who is pretending to be perfect. And can I tell you what they do need? A person they're actually getting to know where they see has real legitimate problems and is not perfect. And they get to see actually how Jesus is a help to you and a savior to you in the midst of your problems. That's what they need to see. So you get a chance to talk about that. Problems in life, imperfections that you have, and how Jesus is meeting you right in the middle of them. So three years ago, Laura and I, uh, we were working out at a gym. I know it's hard to tell, but uh, we're working out at a gym and... uh, we got to know a lady by the name of Jen. And I don't know if Jen is, yes, there's Jen. And so, uh, so we just got to know Jen. I mean, it wasn't like a, we didn't drop a track. We didn't, we just got to know Jen. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. It just invited her into life. We started working out in her class. It was called Warrior Sculpt. I was the token guy in the class. Somehow Laura like twisted me and we, yeah. And so uh, Warrior Sculpt, and you can tell again, the physique would show that I've been to Warrior Sculpt, right? And so, uh, so we, we got a chance just to get to know Jen over a two or three year period, got, got to just do relationships with her. And uh, we got a chance to, to get to know her on a friendship level. After class, Laura would periodically stay and they would chat about various problems both of them had going. They had a moment where they were at Chick-fil-A and they got to talk about gospel stuff, like who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And can I just say, there's a, there's a big difference between dumping the gospel and sharing the gospel. So you get to share the gospel when you're a friend with someone. So she got a chance just to talk about Jesus, which led to last spring, Jen putting her faith in Jesus and God saving her. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Lord got to baptize Jen. And wouldn't that be amazing if this year, about a year from now, you were the person in the waters with someone? You, you were the person that God used your life and lips for the salvation of another? I mean, wouldn't that be something I mean, maybe if we started praying in that direction, like pleading for God to do that, inviting people in, talking about Jesus, maybe, just maybe that would happen for you too. So I'll end it with this prayer. Real simple. In light of us affirming that God has made us missionaries and ambassadors of him, let's pray this together. That that God, Father, make our church family into great missionaries. Amen? Make our church family into great missionaries. Let's pray together. If you're not a Christian in the room and you are just still kind of on the peripheral side, just 
investigating and kicking the tires on this thing, I I want to implore you today and just beg you that that why not make today the, the day that you give your life to Jesus, that you trust and treasure Jesus, that you look at Jesus and say, I am trusting your perfect life to cover my very imperfect one. And, and you know what the Bible says about God? That, that today he would be so ready and so willing to save you. And so can I just encourage, if that's you, there is urgency in that. There is urgency in that. And if you are, if you are a Christian in the room, I think today is a day that, that a lot of us need to repent. That a lot of us need to be on our faces before God confessing our sin of a lack of of joining with God in this great enterprise of reconciliation, of of not knowing our neighbors, of not knowing them. That is is a problem. And, And so maybe today we need to repent and we need to run to Jesus and ask him to begin fueling and motivating mission in our life. Maybe today we need to start drafting some gospel-soaked dreams for what we would see in our neighborhood. And so God, we, we pray for that. I pray that you would make our church family into wonderful missionaries. Motivated and formed and fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Compelled, constrained, and moved because of what you have done for us. Because you have reached down to us, we are fueled to reach out to other people. And so God, will you, will you do that among us? God, will you do that among us? Will you make us wonderful, great ambassadors, mouthpieces, missionaries for you? God, will you give us the, the sort of urgings and desires to see our neighbors safe? Like, if you would save Paul, why wouldn't you save our neighbor? If if you would save us, why wouldn't you save them? And so God, will you give us us big dreams for that? How you might want to use us for those ends? God, will you give us the initiative of, of being sent people to get to know people who don't know Jesus and to actually make them our friends, to actually love them where they are? To get to talk about Jesus and how he saves and rescues and redeems even us. And and God, would you give us the joy and them the joy of you rescuing through our life and lips. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.